Hi, everybody, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it is my treat to be with you today. I'm just so excited we could come together and study the Word of God. It is Wednesday, October 19th. We're continuing in our study of 2 Corinthians. The topic today is titled Treasures in Jars of Clay, and the scripture reference is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. It ends up being the entire chapter. We've got a lot to unpack today, and we'll start in just a moment, but right now, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the opportunity to come together and study your word. Open our hearts and minds to receive your truth today, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, get them ready. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 18, we will be reading that and going through all of it in just a moment. But let me introduce you with a thought here. Paul was under attack in Corinth. That we've talked about, and it continues. His authority and honesty were being questioned. Charges of duplicity were circulating in the church, and Paul was facing a church in revolt. How did Paul handle the opposition? At every step, he deflected criticisms of his abilities. He simply refused to defend himself. He even submitted to his opponents a list of his weaknesses and the trials he had endured. Why did Paul do this? He knew that this list would focus the Corinthians on what was important, and that is God's glorious plan of salvation. And we'll get to all of that in just a moment. So let's open your Bible or Bible apps to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 18, and let's find out what's going on. Starting with verse 1. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit, and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving 
and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And all God's people said, Amen to the reading of his word today. All right, let's unpack this entire passage, shall we? Start with verse 1. It says once again, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. Here's the question. What is the new way Paul's referring to in this verse, and why was he and his partners in ministry committed to never giving up? In chapter 3, Paul described the remarkable covenant God has made with those who come to him through faith in Christ. This new covenant, this new way, allows human beings to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, a veil remains between the sin-hardened minds of humans and the ability to see God's glory. Those forgiven for their sin by God's grace, though, are freed from this veil by God's Spirit. As a result, they can look at God's glory with unveiled faces and begin to be transformed into the image of Christ as His glory becomes theirs. Now, Paul returns to defending his ministry to the Corinthians and others. His role is to carry the message of the new covenant, the new way to people around the world. Paul insists that he and his co-workers have this ministry, this purpose, by God's mercy. He admits he does not deserve, on his own merits, to carry something as precious and valuable as the gospel of Jesus. God has given Paul this job out of his great mercy. That's why Paul said that he and his friends would never give up. In other words, they refused to quit. They might become tired in, but they did not become tired of what they did. They refused to allow obstacles to discourage them to the point of despair. They were committed to their mission of spreading the gospel of Christ. And despite the difficulties that came with their work, they kept going because God had entrusted it to them. Number two. Verse 2 reads, We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. Here's the question. Here Paul is defending his preaching and teaching methods. Why? Paul is clearly contrasting the way he preached with the methods of some of those traveling preachers who had come to Corinth. Paul categorically denied using any suspicious or selfish techniques in his preaching. He and his fellow evangelists had rejected all shameful deeds and underhanded methods, as it is in the scripture there. This expression indicates methods, motives, and actions that are shrouded in secrecy because they're dishonorable and wicked. The implication is that some of the preachers who had visited Corinth had greedy motives because of the havoc and confusion these men were causing in Corinth. One of the telltale signs of the impure motives of these preachers was the way they handled God's word. Instead of a straightforward presentation of the truths of the gospel, they used tricks to captivate their audience, and in doing so, they distorted the word of God. Let me share with you a note that I wrote as I was going through this, just to kind of capture a perspective here for you. 
Paul had rejected this kind of deceptive way when he preached to the Corinthians. He had walked by faith instead of placing his trust in the ways of the world. In other words, Paul always reminded himself of the spiritual realities that were behind his ministry. When he preached the truths of God's word, he reminded himself that he was preaching it before God. The Lord God, the one who knows all secrets, could look into Paul's heart and discern his motives. Because God was always watching him, Paul was careful to preach for the right reasons. He consciously submitted his motivations to God so that no shameful act or motive could disqualify him as a minister. Paul opened up his entire life and honestly told the Corinthians the truth. He never hid anything. Number three. Look at verses three and four. They read, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Here's the question. In these verses, Paul continues his defense in how he preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Explain what he means that the gospel would be hidden from some people. Although the good news Paul preached was a clear presentation of salvation, he admitted that the gospel would be veiled or concealed for some. He explained that there are two types of people, those who will receive eternal life and those who don't believe. Paul's description here of the way Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe is reminiscent of his own conversion experience on the Damascus Road. Although Paul could see perfectly well, he had been blinded to spiritual truth. Unknowingly, he had been an instrument of Satan. But in one magnificent moment, Christ had broken through Satan's deception and had revealed the truth to Paul. Instead of being blinded by Satan like unbelievers are, believers recognize that Jesus is the exact likeness of God. God the Father as Spirit is invisible, but Jesus is God's visible expression. Jesus not only reflects the Father, but as God, he reveals God to us. Christ's glory expresses divine glory. Number four, verse five. It reads, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. Here's the question. According to this verse, who is the focus of Paul's preaching? The focus of Paul's preaching was on Jesus Christ and not himself. Since his own authority was under attack, Paul could have written that he was their God-appointed leader and teacher, as he did in 1 Timothy 2.7. But Paul emphasized that he and his fellow evangelists were the Corinthians' servants. And that was an important perspective to remind them of. Number five, verse six reads, For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Here again, Paul uses the image of light and darkness. What does it mean? The image symbolizes the stark difference between good and evil, between God and Satan. This imagery came from the creation story itself. Go back and check out Genesis 1 verses 2 through 5. Just as God brought order out of the chaos of darkness by ordering, let there be light in the darkness, he was piercing the chaos of evil with the light of his truth. This passage emphasizes that God has made this light shine in our hearts 
so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of Christ illuminates a believer's understanding. Only those who allow their minds to be clouded by Satan's dark deceptions think the message is obscure. God illuminates the minds of believers so that they know with certainty that in Jesus' face they see the glory of God. The implication is that those who look for God's glory only in the Old Covenant, the Old Way, in the face of Moses, are being deceived by Satan. Number six, verse seven reads, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. The question is, what does Paul mean that we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure? And what is the implication for us? People keep treasures in safety deposit boxes and vaults and other secure things. But God places his great treasure, the message that frees people from sin, in fragile clay jars. That's a illusion to we as human beings. So God keeps this message, this great treasure, in human beings which are considered, as the scripture just said, fragile clay jars. The message of freedom that God has entrusted to them would last much longer than their frail bodies. Why would God do this? Because he delights in empowering the weak in order to confound the strong. The Lord loves to answer the prayers of the needy and bring down those who take pride in themselves. God works through the weak and powerless so that it's clear that the power comes from God alone. Number seven, verses eight and nine read, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Doesn't that sound familiar? Those are the words to the song, Trading My Sorrows. What a beautiful representation here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses eight and nine. I don't know if you sing that song in your church or not, but we sure do. It's been an older praise and worship song, if you will, but it's still relevant today. And we get to talk about that a little bit more right here, right now. Here's the question. What did these verses tell you about God's provision for Paul and us as well? Paul freely admitted that he had been crushed and perplexed. You know, there's few teachers that would admit to being perplexed because they might lose the respect of their audience. Then he added that they were never abandoned by God. The Lord did not abandon Paul to his own inadequacies. God had saved Paul from being crushed and driven to despair by his responsibilities and from reaching utter despair. The next two entries speak of external opposition. Paul had been hunted down and knocked down. Paul had received much of his opposition from the Jews. They persecuted him. They even followed him to different cities to malign him. Through it all, God never abandoned him and that's also true for us today. He will never abandon us as well. Number eight, let's look at verses 10 through 12. They read, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Here's the question. In these verses, Paul continues to describe the seriousness of his situation, but that through it all, 
There was hope. What does he mean by all of that? Jesus himself was Paul's model. Although Jesus had all the glories of heaven, all of its power and privilege, he gave it all up to suffer humiliation, insults, and finally death. Paul saw his own sufferings for the cause of Christ as sharing in the death of Jesus. Of course, Jesus' suffering was of a qualitatively different nature. Jesus died on the cross to save believers from their sins. Yet Jesus had warned his followers they could also expect suffering and hardship. The suffering of Jesus' followers would be merely an extension of Jesus' own suffering. So Paul lived under constant danger of death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus will be evident for all people to see. Now in verse 12, it says that Paul lived in the face of death, but he knew that something greater than life on this earth was working through him. His sufferings and death would never spell the end for the life-giving message of the gospel. In fact, God was working so that Paul's suffering would result in eternal life for those who believe in Jesus. This passage reminded the Corinthians that Paul's sufferings, which the Corinthians were presently ashamed of, had brought the message of eternal life to them in the first place. Paul had courageously endured the insults of the Jews in order to deliver the gospel to them, the message that would result in their eternal salvation. Number nine, let's look at verses 13 and 14. They read, but we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. Here's the question. What is Paul's motivation to continue preaching the good news, and why is that important? You know, right off the bat in this verse, Paul identified himself with the writer of the Psalms. In particular, he's talking about Psalm 116. So I want to spend just a moment to talk about the similarities of Psalm 116 and what Paul's life was as well. So just follow me here. Paul, like the psalmist, had experienced the fear of death. If you look at Psalm 116, verse 3, it says, Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. In the midst of troubles and in the face of death, Paul, like the psalmist, had cried out to God. Look at verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord, the psalmist said. Please, Lord, save me. The psalmist believed that God would answer his prayers. In verse 1, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. So he vowed to pray as long as he had breath, which is what it says in verse 2. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Now the psalmist's prayers were not the only expression of his faith in God. He also promised to thank and praise God, telling others of what God had done for him. Look at verses 14 and 17 and 18 of Psalm 116. They read, I will keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So through this psalm, Paul saw an extraordinary expression of faith, which he endeavored to imitate. The psalmist had refused to let his circumstances dictate to him what he should believe. What great encouragement that is for us today, beloved. Although Paul was experiencing the sufferings and death of Christ on this earth, he believed in God, right then there at verse 13. Although Paul was facing suffering, he wasn't discouraged. 
because he knew that Jesus would return. At that time, Paul and the Corinthian believers would celebrate their Savior in his presence because God would raise them with Jesus. The believers in Corinth had been struggling with the doctrine of the resurrection, so Paul had written much to explain why the resurrection is a central doctrine of the Christian faith, with his sights always set on the glories of God's kingdom. Paul didn't have any reason to be ashamed. Instead, he boldly and confidently could preach the gospel and tell others of what God had done for him. What a great message and encouragement that is for us today, folks. We just need to stay strong in continuing to share what we know about Jesus with others. Number 10, verse 15 reads, All of this is for your benefit, Paul says, and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Here's the question. Considering all the verses leading up to this one, verse 15, why does Paul say he endures it all? Paul says that all of the trials and difficulties he and his evangelist friends have endured was for the benefit of the Corinthians. As more people heard of and accepted God's grace, that is God's gift of salvation, more people would join the grand celebration before God. Thanksgiving would overflow toward God, and this would benefit the Corinthian Christians for, through their prayers, they also had participated in Paul's work of spreading the gospel. Ultimately, God would be glorified through all this. All praise and glory would be solely his, for he is the one who sacrificed his own son for the benefit of all who believed. Number 11, verse 16 reads, That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. The question is, why does Paul say that he and his fellow evangelists would never give up? Paul said they would never give up because they knew the great power behind their message. Even though their bodies were deteriorating, moving daily toward death, their spirits, in contrast, were being renewed every day. Paul didn't gripe or complain about how much he gave up in order to preach the gospel. Instead, he knew that every trouble, hardship, and difficulty endured for Christ's sake was making him spiritually new. Paul saw every difficulty as an opportunity to mature in the faith. And now, believe it or not, the final two verses for today. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Here's the question. Here, Paul compares and contrasts earthly sufferings with eternity with God. What is he saying in these verses? Paul knew that the hardships he endured were really quite small and really wouldn't last very long in comparison to how long he would enjoy God's presence, the immeasurably great glory that will last forever, as the verse says. What really matters, what is eternal and permanent, can't be seen, touched, or even measured. Only with the eyes of faith can people fix their gaze on things that cannot be seen. Only with eyes of faith can they begin to understand, with God's help, the eternal significance of their actions. A believer's hope is not in this world. A Christian's hope is not in the power and wealth that can be accumulated on earth. Instead, a Christian's hope is in Christ, someone who cannot be seen at the present moment, 
Nevertheless, Jesus Christ and his significance to each person's life is real. That's why Paul encouraged the Corinthians to live by faith and not by sight. The Corinthians were to take their eyes off of this world, for the things we see now will soon be gone, it says. Instead, they should fix their eyes on the Almighty, the one who possessed all power, for he will bring joys to come that will last forever. Well, folks, we've reached the end of our study today. Well done. We've gone through the entire chapter four. Excited to do that with you. We've talked about being treasures in jars of clay, fragile jars of clay at that, and why we should focus on eternal things and not our immediate circumstances. I hope this has been a challenge for you, but I also hope that you found this really interesting and you're excited about the next opportunity we'll have, which is going to be next week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 and talking about our new bodies. You definitely want to be here for that. Thanks so much for being with me today. It's been a joy to share with you the Word of God, and I appreciate your encouragement as well. Hope you have a terrific rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.